While God does not explain the importance of cud chewing or leaping, of split hooves or scales, the Bible insists that what is clear is that the Torah-observant Israelite live a life that reminds him or her constantly of the unique relationship between the Jewish people and God. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 33, Locust Giraffes and the Meaning of Kashrut. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Yehuda Avner's memoir, The Prime Ministers, is a treasure trove of tales describing his decades of service to Israel's leaders. One of my favorite anecdotes pertains to food. For the first part of Israel's existence, the prime ministers did not ask for kosher food while traveling on state visits overseas. And Avner, a devout observer of Jewish law, would have to ensure kosher food for himself. Avner describes Prime Minister Rabin attending a dinner at the Ford White House with Avner along as a guest. Quote, Soon, everybody was chomping on their succulent fare except me. I had pre-ordered a vegetarian kosher dish, which for some reason tarried. Perhaps it was because my place card had been misspelled. Instead of Yehuda, it was engraved Yeduha Avner. A couple of chairs away, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General George Brown, was chatting with Barbara Walters, the famous television celebrity who was sitting on my right. Within minutes, the general caught sight of my still-empty place setting and, craning his neck to note my name card, boomed, Yeduha! Not eating with us tonight? Whereupon, as if on cue, a butler stepped forward and placed before me a vegetarian extravaganza consisting of a base of lettuce as thick as a Bible, on top of which sat a mound of diced fruit, on top of that a glob of cottage cheese, and on top of that a swish of whipped cream, so that the whole thingamajig must have stood about a foot high, end quote. Avner tells us that President Ford asked the Prime Minister why one man received a separate meal. And Robin, who did not want the religious parties in Israel in his coalition to find out, that he was eating non-kosher in the White House, told President Ford that Avner received a special plate in honor of his birthday. Writes Avner, quote, Then, rising to his full height and grinning from ear to ear, the president raised his glass high and called out to me with an overflow of well-being, Happy birthday, young fella! Let's sing a toast to our birthday boy! With that, the entire banqueting hall rose to its feet and, goblets aloft, chorused a hearty, Happy birthday, dear Yeduha! And as they sang, I slouched sheepishly further into my chair, mortified, end quote. It is a wonderful story, but also profound. For Yehuda, of course, is the name that gives us the origin of Yehudi, Jew, and ultimately the mysterious nature of the kosher laws capture a central aspect of Jewish identity. The word kosher, or fit, is not used in the context of eating by the Torah, but it is now part of Jewish parlance and it tends to include various aspects of Jewish dietary law, ritual slaughter, the ban on mixing milk and meat, the prohibition against blood and certain forms of fat, the forbidding of the gidah nasheh or sciatic nerve. But our passages in Leviticus focus on which animals can be eaten and which cannot. Leviticus 11 verse 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, These are the living things which ye may eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. Whatsoever parteth the hoof, and is wholly cloven-footed, and cheweth the cud among the beasts, that may ye eat. Thus, a kosher animal must chew its cud and have split hooves. Now for fish, verse 9. These may ye eat of all that are in the waters. Whatsoever hath fins and scales in the waters, in the seas, and in the rivers, 
them may ye eat. What is the logic behind these rules? Why is, say, the giraffe kosher, but not the zebra? Why is the trout permissible, but not the catfish? Equally mysterious is the fact that when it comes to birds, the Torah does not give explicit distinguishing signs of what is kosher. Instead, it merely lists birds that are forbidden, with all others permissible, though in general it seems that it is birds of prey that are prohibited. So what is the rationale behind these kosher laws? Why does the Torah ask this of us? Among the great medieval Jewish thinkers, one explanation of kashrut was particularly popular. The Bible, it was often claimed, forbade the ingestion of all animals that are injurious to one's health. Proponents of this view include Maimonides and Nachmanides. In his Guide for the Perplexed, Maimonides insists that biblically forbidden foods are obviously unhealthy. In his words, quote, I say then that to eat any of the various kinds of food that the law has forbidden us is blameworthy. Nachmanides, in his commentary on these biblical passages, also insists that medicine lends insight into the Bible's ultimate intent. For example, when it comes to forbidden fish, Nachmanides argues that those without fins and scales, quote, always dwell in the lower turbid waters, end quote. And he therefore adds that, quote, they are creatures of cold fluid which cleaves to them and is therefore more easily able to cause death, end quote. So the Torah for Nachmanides is seeking to prohibit bottom-dwelling fish. But the hard truth, however, is that Nachmanides, living in Spain, did not have the privilege of eating the Ashkenazic delicacy that would be known as gefilte fish, which is made of the bottom-dwelling carp. It is, ladies and gentlemen, admittedly an acquired taste, one which I love, and carp is certainly kosher. This medical approach to the Bible, so popular in the medieval period, was subjected to a withering and, in my opinion, convincing critique by the great Spanish-Jewish exegete Don Isaac Abravanel. The problem with this approach, Abravanel argues, is threefold. First, it turns the Bible into a medical textbook, one more concerned with cleanliness than godliness. Second, Abravanel argues that the medicinal approach to the kosher laws is empirically false because the Gentile nations who have been eating non-kosher foods do not seem to suffer at all medically due to their ingestion. Third, Abravanel concludes, if the Torah was truly concerned with regulating our diet out of health concerns, why did it not prohibit the eating of harmful vegetation? In sum, the medical explanation of the kosher laws, as time-honored as it may be, is difficult to accept. How then, ladies and gentlemen, are these specific biblical criteria to be accounted for? One brilliant modern explanation has been offered by Leon Cass, who, like others before him, notes that the forbidden animals and their signs seem to relate in some way to their form, their means of motion, and whether they eat other animals or not. The Torah, he suggests, forbids animals that appear to violate God's original plan for creation in Genesis, where separation between different parts of nature is emphasized, and where, before the flood, no meat-eating takes place. Therefore, for Cass, any animals that cannot be clearly categorized or which violate the original natural order are forbidden. For Cass, what is prohibited, and I'm paraphrasing his words here, creatures that have no proper or unambiguous place, for example, the amphibians, creatures that have no proper form, especially the watery ones, creatures that have incomplete form, like incompletely cloven-footed animals, creatures that violate proper locomotion, such as those animals that live in water but walk on land, like lobster, and creatures that violate the original dietary code, such as carnivores. I am only quoting part of Cass's elaborate explanation, and I recommend reading 
the entire book in which Cass's writings on eating appears, The Hungry Soul. But I believe that the explanation, however brilliant it may be, is inadequate in the end. For several reasons, but first and foremost because there is one permitted creature whose existence, I think, challenges Cass's explanation. Leviticus 11.21 These ye may eat of all winged swarming things that go upon all fours which have jointed legs above their feet with which to leap upon the earth. These ye may eat the locust of its kind, the bald locust of its kind, the cricket of its kind, and the grasshopper of its kind. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, though this is unknown to many, and while almost every form of insect is prohibited, certain forms of leaping locusts are absolutely kosher. Now, how are we to explain that the locusts permitted amidst all the abominated insects? The Torah forbids all flying insects and all walking insects, but not the locusts. This is surprising. As I argued in an article about the kosher laws in Azure, it would appear that in a system that abhors ambiguity, locusts ought to be the most detested of all. After all, they cannot be classified as a flying insect or as a scuttling, creepy crawler, but rather as something in between. A leaper. The permissibility of the locust, it would seem, remains unexplained, mysterious. And none of the cited explanations for the kosher laws adequately makes the case for the exclusion of the locust from the biblical ban on insects. I therefore believe, ladies and gentlemen, that we are not supposed to understand the signs given us by the Torah, that they are deliberately mysterious. And indeed, we are not meant to know why a kosher animal must chew its cud or why a kosher fish must have scales. This is known to God alone. But the larger purpose of the kosher laws is made clear later in Leviticus. As Jacob Milgram notes, Leviticus 20 quite explicitly states the ultimate purpose of kashrut, beginning at the end of verse 24. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the peoples. Ye shall therefore separate between the clean beast and the unclean, and between the unclean fowl and the clean. Meaning, Israel is to distinguish and separate among the animals in order to express and reinforce its own distinctiveness from other peoples. Kashrut, then, is a symbolic expression of Jewishness. While the Torah leaves as a mystery the reasons for the specific criteria of the permitted animals legislated in Leviticus, it is explicit with regard to the overall purpose that these dietary distinctions are meant to achieve, a daily lifestyle that expresses Israel's chosenness. The nature of kosher is thus at once mysterious and obvious. While God does not explain the importance of cud chewing or leaping, of split hooves or scales, the Bible insists that what is clear is that the Torah-observant Israelite live a life that reminds him or her constantly of the unique relationship between the Jewish people and God. Interestingly, this point was made in the presence of Yudah Avner by his colleague and fellow Orthodox Jew, Yaakov Herzog. Herzog, while serving as Israeli ambassador to Canada, had famously challenged the celebrated and virulently anti-Israel historian Arnold Toynbee to a public debate, and had emerged victorious. When Herzog and Avner took part in a dinner at the ranch of President Johnson in Texas, most Israelis there ate whatever was served, but not them. Avner writes, quote, Dr. Herzog, who was partnered with the Secretary of State Dean Rusk, beckoned over a butler to unobtrusively ask for two green salads, one for him, one for me. Rusk puckered his brow and muttered an apology. Oh dear, 
I see our protocol people have slipped up. They should have known you both observe the dietary laws. Forgive us. Herzog made light of it. When I was ambassador in Ottawa, he chuckled, I challenged the philosopher Arnold Toynbee to a public debate. He asserted that we Jews were a fossilized relic of an obsolete civilization, inert, petrified, dead. I argued we were a vitally alive people, so alive that history could not do without us. Presumably, were he here tonight, he would say that keeping kosher is a fossil-like anachronism. And I would say to him, it's a distinction of our eternal identity, end quote. Herzog is absolutely correct. But even as kosher laws remind Israelites of God's choosing them from among the families of the world, Jews are simultaneously warned against spiritual arrogance. And therefore, the criteria employed in kosher laws, hooves, scales, leaping legs, all remain unexplained, understood only by God. Even as a Jew expresses a chosen status through diet, the Jew still remains mystified by the method of that expression. In this way, the laws of kashrut inspire not arrogance but humility, for even as the Jews are informed that they are the chosen of God, they are immediately reminded that they are themselves utterly different from God. They are elected, but they are certainly not omniscient. They are human beings chosen by the Almighty. The Israelites are obligated to remind themselves that they are chosen. Nevertheless, the mysteriousness of the laws of Kashrut also reminds them that they are the servants of an all-knowing God who has chosen them in order to serve as the Almighty's messengers to the world. If there was an Israeli leader who approached Jewish chosenness with both the proper pride and the required humility, it was Menachem Begin. It is therefore fitting that Begin, upon becoming prime minister, insisted on his entire delegation being served kosher food at functions overseas. Thus, Avner tells us that at another White House visit, the following announcement was made, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, history is being made here tonight. This is the first time ever that a holy kosher menu under strict rabbinic supervision is being served in the White House. And this, in honor of and out of respect for our esteemed guest of honor, the Prime Minister of the State of Israel, Mr. Menachem Begin, end quote. Avner further tells us that, quote, a couple of weeks before our trip, Begin had charged me with the almost impossible task of recommending a high-class kosher caterer for the occasion. This at the request of the White House and in consultation with our embassy. The task was next to impossible because of the ferocious competition between the potential candidates. I quickly surrendered the challenge to the Rabbinical Council of America, a central rabbinic organization, which, together with the White House housekeeper, Mary Lou, vetted menus and cast the deciding vote. The result was a succulent banquet of roast lamb, sun-dried tomatoes, roasted potatoes, and green beans with almonds, followed by fruit and assorted desserts, all washed down with fine Israeli wines, end quote. Later in his career as Israeli ambassador to Britain, Avner would also be served special kosher food in the presence of the queen. And he tells us that, quote, the only distinction of our kosher fare was that our plates were piled twice as high as everybody else's, end quote. Jewish kosher laws are meant not to deny us the pleasures of food, but rather to remind us of who we are. Not Yuduhi, but Yehudi, Jews called to remain loyal to the traditions of our people and to thereby embody our mysterious identity. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.